Hey, it's Jeff here. After working as an automotive tech for almost 25 years, I can honestly say that finding employment with the right shop has been the difference maker between loving what I do every day or hating my career choice. Let me tell you, I've been there, but I've also had jobs where work didn't really feel like work. I love the challenge of fixing cars. So loving what I do, that's the easy part. Finding a good place to do it in, now that's been the struggle. And that's where my friends at ProMotive knock it out of the park. They're a recruitment company specializing in jobs for our automotive industry. A-techs, B-techs, master techs, service advisors, managers, you name it. They are constantly looking for applicants in automotive to link them with available job postings at only the best vested shops around the country. ProMotive has a team of professional recruiters that can help you with your resume, prep you for the interview process, and negotiate the best pay and benefits package for you. And best of all, it's free to anyone looking to gain employment. Check them out at gopromotive.com slash Jeff. gopromotive.com slash Jeff. Just think, you could be just five minutes away from finding your dream job. President of the company came down. He said, sir, how is it that you can justify paying first officer, new hire first officers, only enough that they qualify for public assistance because of the amount of money? And president of the airline didn't get angry. He simply turned his head to the left and turned it to the right and said, look around. Do you see any empty chairs? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another exciting, thought-provoking episode of the Jade Mechanic Podcast. My name's Jeff, and I'd like to thank you for joining me on this journey of reflection and insight into the toils and triumphs of a career in automotive repair. After more than 20 years of skin knuckles and tool debt, I want to share my perspectives and hear other people's thoughts about our industry. So pour yourself a strong coffee or grab a cold Canadian beer and get ready for some great conversation. I'm uh, ecstatic tonight to welcome in uh, my guest, somebody that I consider a standout in the industry in terms of uh, perspectives and influence and uh, uh, somebody I'm very proud to call a friend, um, Mr. Dutch Silverstein. Dutch, uh, how are you tonight, man? Well, I'm peachy and now I'm starting to blush after that type of uh, introduction. And, and as I've told everyone who says nice things about me, uh, I'll be happy to send you money in the mail, but it's going to be an American, not Canadian. I don't do that metric crap. Um, so, <laughs> yes, it's, it's well known your distaste for metric. Um, it's uh, our friend Lucas has, has made that a point to uh, <laughs> to share that epic video. Um, where does that come from? The- you know that that just started out as as a gag, obviously with my background. Um, you know, we <laughs> metric was part of the the way that I was uh, raised in in um, the science aspect of it. So uh, I remember just going in the '70s when they tried to convert the country over, and and the backlash that was about that. And I always thought that that was just it was a fun thing to poke fun at. You know, I mean, it was, uh, and it, it got me to, to get a lot of stuff off my chest in a rant and just start hollering at people. And I was having a blast. You know, I mean I'm that. And metric is infinitely easier, but it's not as much fun. It absolutely is not as much fun. Yeah. You know, mathematically um, it makes more sense, but it's certainly, um, yeah, it's, you know, I don't, I don't have an opinion as the one is better than the other. It's just mathematically it's easier. Oh yeah. But it's, I, it's, it's absolutely, you know, base 10, you, it's just, 
it's simpler. There's, you know, you could say a lot of really good things about it, but um, it's kind of like it has no soul. You know, um, I remember when the Acura NSX came out, that was, that car was, did everything well. Yeah. And um, it was just soulless. You know, it, it wasn't, if you bought yourself a sports car, you wanted quirks. You, you wanted something that was going to demand your attention that you were going to, you know, it had a soul. Yeah. Um, this is not, you know, it's soulless it's flavorless so it's useless not really useless obviously but utilitarian versus something that actually gives you maybe an experience right some some idiosyncrasies and quirks and such so you're a man that's had quite an extensive we could say seat time right and not just an automotive you're give us all kind of your you've got a quite the aviation background too right can let's talk about that because yeah i was um i started out in the 70s um where I was, everybody ha- has a gift. I, I'm absolutely certain that everybody um, has a gift, and whether that gift is through some people are very, very good at music or art or sports, or you know, people have these gifts, and then they they work to develop them. The only thing that I was good at was understanding how things work and flying airplanes. That that was that's it. I, I'm terrible at everything else. As far as an athlete, you'd rather pick Timmy, yeah, right, the quadriplegic, than you would me. You'd have to like have guys. Okay, we'll take him, but you got to throw in. Uh, you know, we want a three run lead, and we, you know, I mean, that's that's all there was to it because I was absolutely horrible at it. But I knew from a young age that I wanted to fly airplanes. But my, you know, my parents couldn't afford to do that. We were middle-class kids. Um, my mother was a school teacher. My father was a photographer, never graduated from college, um, met my mother and then got married. So I had to work in order to be able to afford flying lessons. And the way to do that was to take the gifts that I had, which was to understand how things worked and apply it to what I could bicycles in the neighborhood, lawnmowers, yeah. cars, whatever it took to put money back so that I could afford flying lessons. Mm-hmm. So it's, and then, and that's kind of a similar, that's not a, an uncommon, um, story that we hear from so many of us in the industry, right. But you're using it as a, as a means to a different path, right. Versus like you saw beyond that, right. You, you, I don't want to say beyond, cause that's like saying that one's above the other, but for you, it was just a means to, to, to get into the air. Whereas so many of us, it's like, they just take that to the career. Um, where did you grow up, Dutch? Are you a New Yorker? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a New Yorker. I was born and raised in the Bronx. And then from the Bronx, we went out to the suburbs. And then uh, from there, um, I went to a small school in New England um, to attend college. And that's where um, I got, I earned a Bachelor of Science degree in business administration and in aeronautical science. Graduated with that, from there um, with flight time and then started to pursue uh, the flying jobs. Um, that's pretty much it. You know, that's the, the short version of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and so you had, how many, how many years were you in the air? Like as a, as a commercial pilot? The, the it's, I started, it's done in hours, right? Your the your clock 
in hours and, and block hours. I, I stopped adding. You had a, a logbook, and every time you, you went out on a flight segment, you filled out how much time you were in the air. 1.2, 1 1.5, 0 0.7, you know, you just logged everything. And the purpose of that was so that you could show when you went to achieve different ratings and certifications that you had the minimum requirement necessary to do that and that you were going to be hireable by an airline because that was the ultimate goal, mm -hmm. which to be hired on by a major carrier. And they wanted to see a specified amount of flight time. So you had to do that. Once I reached that point, um, I quit adding up my logbook. I stopped at that point at like 9,700 hours. Um, and I, I think if I had to hazard a guess, um, I would say 20 something thousand hours in the air. I mean, if it, and it's just a wag, it's a wild ass guess because I just stopped. There was no reason I had gotten all as high as I could go in the airline with the airline transport pilot certificate that I had in the various type ratings, there was no benefit for me to sit on my logbook. Now, some guys still do. There are guys that I know that have 30, 40,000 hours. And after every flight segment, they're writing in their logbook, you know, every night when, when they get home or after, at the end of the trip that they went from here to there. And I just was like, you know, the, the airline kept a, a, a record of that. Mm -hmm. So, all I did was we had little books, uh, little baby log books, and we just kept those every day. And then the, um, the airline had master sheets. So you would go home and you would transfer that information to your master log book. And I, I quit doing that, you know, many, many, many years ago, because once I got hired on with a major, there was no reason for me to, to do it anymore. Mm -hmm. There was nothing else that, you know, aside from curiosity. I wonder how much my actual time is. I just always guessed. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, so you started, can I, what kind of, what was your age when you finally got on with a big carrier? Um, I was in my twenties. The way it had happened was through uh, mergers and acquisitions. Mm -hmm. um, I wound up working for one organization, which was Empire Airlines. Empire Airlines was regional airline of the year at the time that Piedmont Airlines was considered to be airline of the year. They were a major carrier. Okay. So in order to get, and it's kind of funny, but in order to get the routes into Canada and the landing slots into Canada, it was uh, less expensive for Piedmont to buy Empire than it was to petition for the landing slots and routes because the Canadian government said, no, we're not issuing anymore. Yeah. yeah. So um, they bought Empire and then U.S. Air bought Piedmont and that's how it, it you know, and then uh, America West came in and uh, ultimately American. Yeah. So pretty big carrier by the time it was all said and done, really. Like that's. Yeah. By the time it was all, all said and done, you know, but then again, you, you just you're a number. You know, um, so that's, and realistically, it was funny the way, the way you said it, because when I was in high school, many, many years ago in the, in the seventies, the economy wasn't roaring. Things were not going good. And 
when you wanted to get hired on with a major carrier, especially if you wanted to get hired on with American Airlines, it was said that you had to have a lunar landing on your resume. I mean, <laughs> because there were much more, there are many more applicants than there were slots. Yeah, for sure. For sure. You know, uh, so I had actually looked into um, with a friend of mine, Neil Broadbent, uh, Neil Broadbar, excuse me, looking into buying a service station that was uh, for sale. His father uh, had ran a muffler shop. So we were going to go in partners. And then um, the economy started to break free and we were able to move forward. So we didn't wind up doing that. But um, that's where we were until uh, 2004 slash 2005 when I went for a routine physical. And at that point, um, the results of the physical showed that uh, I had a blood disorder that they thought might have been leukemia. So they put you on chemotherapy. And once you get put on chemotherapy, um, the FAA, it's a catch-22 in that they say, well, in my case, my platelet count was three times higher than a normal person. Wow. Um, so the FAA says, well, your platelet count means you're at a statistically significant increased risk of having a heart attack or stroke you can't fly because we don't need you, you know, have stroking out when you're flying. It makes sense. For sure. So, but if you go on the chemotherapy, the chemotherapy brings back your white blood cell, your red blood cell count, your platelet count. The problem is when you're on chemo, you can't concentrate. <laughs> you're exhausted. I mean, it's, there's a host side effects. So if I went on it, I couldn't fly because of the side effects. If I didn't go on it, I couldn't fly because of the platelet count right. and the increased risk. So that's uh, a part of the regulation 6153, which is no airman shall execute the privileges of his or her airman certificate while operating under a known medical deficiency. Mm -hmm. So they had you coming and going. Yeah. So there I was realizing that uh, now um, I've been with the airline at that point for 20 years. I've got a fife, uh, family, um, and no way to provide for them. So I had to fall back on what I knew because the, the, prior to that, um, when I was in college, there was a, I approached a, a fellow who's repairing pinball machines mm -hmm. and I walked, I'll talk to anybody. And I said, can you really make a living fixing pinball machines? And he laughed and reaches into his pocket. He pulls out his uh, airman certificate and he's an Eastern Airlines 727 captain. And I said to him, what the hell are you doing this for? Because at that time, it was well known that an Eastern Airlines 7-2 captain was making approximately a Cadillac a month in pay. That was a big deal. Right? You know, okay. And again, this this is um, the 70s. And so, you know, this this was good money. This was big money during that, that period of time. Um, and he said, something I'll never forget, son, in this business, you better have a backup. Fast forward to I'm on with uh, the carrier that I ultimately wound up being with, and I, I'm off of a trip. I go walking through Sears because I just purchased my house, and I need a lawnmower. So I'm in full uniform, and the, <laughs> the salesman that comes over starts talking to me, and he's using terminology that the average layperson would never know. Right. If you're not in the business, you're just it, – it'd be like walking up to a, a person – who's not in the car business and have them start talking to you about fuel trim. 
Mm-hmm. It's it's not something that that's likely to happen very often. So I asked him, I said, how is it you know so much about my business? He reaches into his pocket. He pulls out his certificate. He was an Eastern Airlines 7-2 captain. They went bankrupt and he lost everything he had. And he wound up working selling lawnmowers at Sears. Wow. That, yeah, that's when I was consumed with finding my backup plan. So from that point forward, um, I worked seven days a week for nine years. I didn't take a day off. The only time I didn't go to work, I was working for the airline between 20 and 22 days a month and then coming back and sleeping in my car and some nights on what's called a short turn because you would have where I was on on reserve. Um, And it almost cost me my my marriage. Um, But the airline declared bankruptcy twice. And the first time they did that, my entire retirement which was almost a million dollars was lost, was gone. Yeah. Completely gone. They had done something which they had never done in the history of aviation before. So it was, I mean, gone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then soon thereafter they did it again. And my wife who was, uh, when they went bankrupt the first time said, I think I understand what you're doing. When they went bankrupt a second time, she said, I'll never give you a hard time about it again because she knew, well, yeah, my kids grew up without me. The fact is because I was able to do it, I was able to bounce back. And we had some guys that I knew, some people I miss that became overwhelmed and then killed themselves because they couldn't deal with the, the losing everything. So you know? the, 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 I want to say the side hustle or the second job, that was you're working in a shop. Yeah, that that was what I what I had done was uh, a buddy of mine had uh, a business and he had a bay more than he needed. He was just one guy working by himself. So he said, look, it it makes no sense for me to charge you rent. Yeah, because you're not going to be able with the amount of days that you're able to work. You're not going to be able to cover your rent and the expenses. So what I'll do is I'll just take a percentage of the ticket that you have until such time as you're generating sufficient revenue through your clients that you could cover the rental expense. And that was my first taste of understanding what numbers were because <laughs> what he wanted to do was take 50% of, every ticket. <laughs> of the entire thing. And I'm like, you know, you <laughs> know, I had this much and now he goes, well, this is, you know, this is the way you're going to do it. So we settled on a more amicable figure, but I'm like, you're not leaving me with anything <laughs> at 50%. I'm working free, that's you know, sm- but it's, that's motivation to get up to where you can rent it versus that, that deal. Right. Like that's. Yeah. So, I mean, um, and I had, it was good because I had people that uh, waited specifically for me, as long as it wasn't an emergency, mm-hmm. if it was something that they could schedule out, a week, a 10 days, um, they would wait sometimes two weeks or more for me to get the one because I didn't, I wasn't the cheapest, but I stood behind my work yeah. and I answered questions that, that they had. And I wasn't because I still had my income at that time from the airline, although it was greatly diminished. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a, if I don't get this job, I'm not going to eat. Right. Yes. So there was a certain amount of latitude that I had there where I could uh, charge reasonable prices without cutting my own throat and without giving the stuff away. Um, 
and I wasn't necessarily any less expensive than the dealer. That was, um, you know, that was not where my market was. People just wanted to get the stuff done right. And they wanted to have the, uh, the ability to talk to somebody about without having to go to corporate mm-hmm. or feel oh. like they're nameless. In this time frame, are you, are you in North Carolina yet or are you still? Yeah, I'm in North Carolina. You've moved there. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I moved um, in chasing the flying jobs. I moved from seven times in, in two years. Wow. And I moved from um, New Hampshire to uh, Hondo, Texas, uh, to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, to Detroit, to Syracuse, New York. I, you know, if there was work, you had to go where the work was. Well, God bless your wife then, eh, for moving around that much in, in that short period of time. That's Well, no, she, she wasn't with me at the time. Oh, I was, no, that's when I was, was single. I didn't get married till much later on in, in life. Oh. Um, because this was, it really was, uh, the way aviation was, it would chew you up and spit you out. Very nomadic lifestyle by the sounds of it. So. Yeah. It, if you were chasing flying jobs at the time, you were going to go and do whatever they told you to do in order to get it. Because if you, what you wanted was to build flight time. Yep. You had to. So basically for the years that you were flying for commuters or you were a flight instructor when you first started out or you were flying night freight or flying checks, you were treated like an indentured servant. And when that happened, you know, you're talking about coming home with $135 a week after putting in 60 hours, living five guys in a house flying for a commuter, because that's what when you're a co-pilot. Um, you know, getting $185 a week gross, coming in with 135 take home and surviving on uh, bologna sandwiches and macaroni and cheese, five for a buck. Yeah. So you're really doing it just for the love of flying at that point, right? It's not. Lucrative. Yeah, there's, there's no there was no money in it. This You weren't, you know, what you did was deferred gratification said if you got hired mm-hmm. by a major and if that major survived. And if you were able to move up in the ranks because the economy didn't take a downturn or because you didn't medical out, then you would ultimately be able to earn good money. Mm-hmm. And the airlines had instituted um, different pay scales, an A scale, a B scale, and the C scale. The C scale was the probationary pay that you got hired on to when you first got hired for a year. And we've had people that were at the airline who were in C scale that were on public assistance. So here they are flying co-pilot in a multi-million dollar airplane with people's lives in the back and they're on public assistance because they don't make enough money. And I'll never forget it. A, uh, when the airline I was working for had layoffs, what happened was the guys from, the major went to the regionals. Okay. So they moved down to the, re- they, they were trying to get jobs. And mm-hmm. so they wound up getting hired by some of the regionals that couldn't find candidates to fly. Right. So the regionals wanted these experienced people. They weren't real keen about their attitude, but they wanted their experienced people. So <laughs> my buddy asked them, um, the president of the company came down and, um, welcomed everybody there to the, to the airline and you had to know him, but he, he said, sir, how is it that you can 
justify paying first officer, new hire first officers, only enough that they have to qualify for public assistance because of the amount of money. And the president of the airline didn't get angry, he didn't, nothing. He simply turned his head to the left and turned it to the right and said, look around. Do you see any empty chairs? Yeah. And that's when I knew that's the nature of business and that's the nature of piecework. And that's what aviation is when you're flying for, that's why I identify with text. When you, when you are flying for a carrier, you're paid per flight segment. It's the same thing as mm -hmm. you're putting together pieces at a factory yep. and you're paid to build a widget or you're a flat rate tech and you're paid to get a specific job done because it's a production based business. Mm -hmm. That's the reason why flight play is flight pay is not the same as duty pay. Yeah. Because of that, right? So somebody says, "Well, wow, you you know, you you got 85 hours for the month. You know, I I'll, I'll do 60 hours in a week and you're you you know, you guys, well, that's not how it really works. You can be on duty scheduled for 13 hours and 59 minutes. When I was going through and expected to go to 15 hours. And if you only log three hours of flight time for that day, what you got paid for was three hours. Three hours. Yeah. It's like kind of being on standby then sort of. Yeah. Well, you were, when you're on reserve, which is what I was for a good part of my career, you're on a pager um, and cell phone and the, it would go off and you had a specified amount of time to get to the airport where you're going to take a flight segment. But even in what's called lines of time where you were senior enough to hold and bid a line of time that says, okay, you're going to fly um, a series of trips Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of every week. What the pilots wanted was to get in, fly as much as they could and then get out because that meant that during the days that they were on duty, they would realize the greatest amount of revenue. They'd log the greatest amount of flight time, right? Okay. That meant that if you did that on enough days, you could have the rest of the month off. Yeah. You wanted to get your time in as quickly as you could. The airline viewed this completely differently. And the way the airline viewed it was we have a resource and that resource is a warm body that's known as a pilot. So we want to make sure that we have that resource at the airport or close proximity. So we're going to schedule where you fly from one destination to another, and then you sit for up to three hours and 59 minutes, because if you, they put you scheduled for four hours, they had to put you in a hotel. Mm -hmm. So they would t schedule to sit for three hours and 59 minutes. <laughs> now, if during that, that sit time where you were at the, at the airport, a trip got canceled or something and you had to cover revenue, they would pull you off of your trip and stick you on that one. Mm -hmm. You were basically, it was almost what's known as an on-premise reserve once you were there because they were looking at you as being something to be utilized. Yep. Fair. And it doesn't matter, you know, about dentist appointments or Johnny's ball game or Sarah's recital. Your job was to production. Yep. And as a, um, component in that production, we expect you to, to be used. Yeah. So that's pretty much the, the way that it was, uh, it was working. Most people have no idea, um, you know, just like what we do in, in our field, 
the, the image that they have of, of the life that a pilot leads is completely different because they know one guy who's senior and he only works X amount of days a month. That doesn't represent the the vast majority of, of pilots that are that are out flying. I, I had no idea until talking to you at all. I I just assumed that you know there there's there's a monthly salary and and you know it's you have so many hours that you have to be rested between flights and, and that's it. I just assumed that it was like a, a great paying gig and you know I'm my eyes are being really open to the reality. But it, it, it can be a great paying gig um, when you reach a certain point. Mm-hmm. And at, at that point, you know, it, it took seven years to get a, a, from B scale to A scale at, at the airline. And now with the, the pilot shortage, the same way there's a technician shortage, you see the parallels here? Yeah. We're talking about production and, and shortage and, you know, the wages have gone up. So, I would have, if I was still flying, I would make certainly a lot more money than I had ever made um, in the past. But that's the way the cookie crumbles. You know, it's not, it's not what people think it is. If you're on reserve, you're guaranteed that typically a certain amount of hours per month, um, between seventy-two and seventy-six at the time I departed, um, and then you were expected to fly up to that that time if you're a regular line holder you can go see you can't fly more than 85 hours a month a thousand hours of year of actual block time and actual flight time not on duty time but flight time Mm -hmm. per year and that working that gets to be problematic especially when you have weather and delays fatigue issues safety issues yeah yeah so you so while you were uh, so while you're flying you're still you're getting this one bay kind of i don't want to say rental but you're 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 occupying a bay and you're and you're using mm-hmm. that as your side hustle mm-hmm. um, and then you get grounded medically mm-hmm. so tell me how you went from from that but i don't want to say from the little thing, the little oper- operation you got going on to, to how you've gotten to where you are, you know, like so the, the, what happened was that the guy that I was working for in not working for, but I would work for him when he was sick. In other words, I would take over for his, but the guy that I was working with Tim, he lost his lease in that building. Okay. Because the business that he was working on, was in the back of a body shop and the body shop got sold. So he lost a place to run his business, which meant I lost a place to run the business. So what he did was he went and he bought a building next door to the body shop. And once he did that, I was able to go from one bay to two and I had two inside lifts and an outside. So basically I was able to increase production because I tear one down You know, order it, tear the other, go back to the first, you know, run back and forth like a a nut. But I was a lot younger. (laughs) And I would stay till 11, 12, 1 o'clock in the morning when when I could. I mean, that was because, again, a long time ago, (laughs) I can't do that now. Like 9 o'clock, I turn into a, you know, I fall asleep. Turn into a pumpkin. But so I went from that 
to um, Chibes, and then he decided he wanted to move to Florida. So he said, do you want to buy the building? If you don't want to buy the building, I hate to tell you this, but I'm going to kick you out. Yeah. Because I want to go to Florida. It's too cold in the Carolinas here, which cracked me up. You know, he was he was from Jersey. When it was 70 degrees outside, he put on a, a hooded sweatshirt. and He turned the heat up in the shop and I'm freezing. You know, I'm like, Tim, you're, you're killing me, Smalls. You're, you know, you're just killing me. <laughs> and literally 70 degrees, he was like, ah, he's, he's dying. Right? The Carolinas are Okay, sure. And he was he was kind of getting burned out from uh, doing this. He went from uh, basically seven o'clock in the morning till six o'clock at night, from seven to, to five. To I'm going to um, leave early on Fridays at three. To I'm leaving Fridays at twelve. To I'm not going to be open for Fridays, so. What I did is I just bought the building, Good. you know, um, borrowed everything that I had against uh, my mortgage um, and cashed in my savings and went out and bought the building and then went full time. And did you That's, keep most of a lot of his customers or did they kind of just did you do you absorb his clientele base or I, I absorbed some, but the fact is that I ran my business differently than he did. I was just going to say, I kind of suspected this, that would be the, the trend for, for you. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, um, Tim was blindingly fast. I have never seen a tech that fast, that consistent and that good in my entire life. Insofar as, uh, fixing something. Uh, I can't remember the last time he had a comeback. I mean, uh, he was just phenomenal to watch, but he would, because he was focused on dollars. If a customer wanted to, to supply parts, he put it on Yeah, and he'd just tell him if it fails, I don't care. Not my problem. Right. He, if there was something that was in electronics, he didn't want to do it. He'd ship them to the dealer because that's not where the money was going to be made. Right. You know, he was, he was focused on making money, which is cool. That's, you know, and he would never steal from anybody. He no. would, he would, you could leave a hundred dollars on the seat and there'd be a note saying you left a hundred dollars here. He was as honest as the day is long, but he, he knew that he had a limited series of, of repairs that he could make, that he could make exceedingly well, very profitably. And that's what he did. That's all he focused on. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I watched him change a clutch um, in a Honda and it was 90 minutes. Wow. Right. I mean, he took the car, looked at it, said, and this was on a Friday, closed at noon. And he said, hack. And he looked at the, at the, the clock and 90 minutes later, that car was leaving under its own power. And he didn't throw bolts away or brackets or <laughs> that sort of stuff. It was watching, it was like seeing a guy conduct a symphony. There was no wasted motion. Right. There was nothing. Everything went in, exa- you know, boom, done. You know? So when uh, some of his customers, they weren't accustomed to being charged for diagnostics. Mm-hmm. And I was going to charge for diagnostics because I understood that, you know, and they wanted to bring their own parts and they want, you know, so that part of the business 
didn't yeah. la- I, you know, it didn't, it didn't last. My reputation wasn't built on putting, installing your own parts or any in that other stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, um, he had a, uh, equilibrium problem. And there were some days he just couldn't work because the stuff that was going on, um, he, he, he really couldn't stand. You would think he was loaded, but he wasn't. He just, so I do the work for him and I take three times as long, but that's, you know, so we had built up a good rapport that way, but no, there, there wasn't, I purchased the building, I purchased the equipment, but there was no customers that were going to, cause my customers weren't, you know, the first thing I did was raise the prices. Right. <laughs> people you know and they knew me because they saw me you know for nine days a month sure. around you know for for a while so they knew who i was but my debt load was going to be a great deal greater than his was so i had to raise my prices mm-hmm. yeah so no they they didn't uh they didn't hang around yeah wow <laughs> i mean and that's that's not an uncommon story either um you know, there's that, that tale has been told several times, right? Those SIM kind of acquisitions. And, you know, we talk all the time about how we see the people that break out on their own and decide, you know, I, I had a side hustle, you know, I, I build a, a client base at home working at night, you know, shade tree and whatever you want to call it. And then we see that so many times they eh, Dutch when they start their own business and they start to have to charge almost like a legitimate price you know, because of cost and the overhead has suddenly, you know, isn't just a tree, it's, it's a building and insurance. And so they lose that customer base. Right. And it's, um, I think it's one of the things that so many people never accounted for. They just assume that those people are going to always be there because, you know, you were, you're used to work on my stuff for $25 an hour. And now, you know, you're at $65 an hour and, and, and I'm going to go somewhere else because, you know, it's, it's sad. It's, I'm sure like lots of people, you know, they have the story too, where it's like, well, they've stuck by me since, but I don't believe that it's even probably 50% that people retain when they make that change. Right. So. No, the, the people that had heard about me, cause they wrote a, they wrote an article about me in, in the local paper. Yeah. There were actually a couple of articles about me in the local paper. So the people that came to me because of, of that article, um, and it had to do with the fact of what was going on with the airline, with mm-hmm. declaring bankruptcy and, and losing everything. It was a human interest story. They were happy to pay what what I wanted to charge, and and I wanted to ensure that when I first started out, I didn't want, and that was the reason that my rates were pretty much equivalent, like I said, to what the dealer was charging. I was not selling on cost. Yeah. I'm not saving you money versus going to, you know, if I'm saving you money, it's because I'm recommending that which you genuinely need that I can prove versus trying to meet an arbitrary sales goal for the day because I'm trying to meet a a target, a weekly target of sales because I'm trying to meet a monthly target Mm -hmm. because I'm trying to make a yearly target. I didn't, upselling was not, I didn't have a commission structure. You know, when I started hiring people, I still don't. My, there's no commissions, there's no bonus, no spiffs. The, there are bonuses in that um, there are longevity bonuses, and there are um, for for being and there are Christmas bonuses. But my CSR is hourly. My uh, manager is salary. 
the uh, I have a part-time writer that comes in. He's uh, hourly. My techs have got really, really high base guarantees. Like forty hours is not uncommon, mm-hmm. you know, for for the tech that's here the, the longest. So there's no, and I don't do the for every set of wiper blades you sell up, but yeah. you get an extra fifty cents, and then I don't do any of that crap. Yeah, and I don't tell people that they need things because I'm under pressure. Mm-hmm. And I never, I never wanted to do that. I, I viewed myself as hokey as it sounds. I viewed myself as a trusted advocate. No, it's that's not that's not hokey at all. That's uh, we. There's a whole lot of us that that really say we do that, right? But I don't believe that all of us are always the the need and the push to to hit the goal or to you know whatever you want to say, pay rent or pay payroll or something drives us. Sometimes I think we all kind of you know do a little bit maybe more work with the pen than you know is 100% truthful on that statement of you know we advocate only for what the car needs, right? I think we've all had to be guilty of that sometimes no matter what so it's it's it's, it's honorable you know you got to ask yourself how many times when you've been working in a shop and you're listening to it, where a customer comes in right or a consumer comes in somebody you've never seen before how many times has a service writer that to your knowledge ever said to that customer when that customer speaks on the phone i need you to show up 10 minutes early We've got you scheduled for an eight o'clock appointment. I need you to shut up if you could a quarter to eight. That'd be great. 10 minutes of eight because there's some things I want to go over so we can tailor what we do for you. Yeah. So I have this, this questionnaire here. I'd like you to fill out, please. And I want you to tell me things like, is this car leased? Mm. And if it's leased, do you plan on buying it out? Tell me what you think about cars. Are they just means of conveyance? How long do you hold on to a car? Do you have the, the an emotional attachment to this car that, that you're bringing me today? Basically, you have to interview them to understand what it is that they need so that you can tailor the experience to them. And that's completely different than what most shops do. I, I've never worked yet for somebody that would do that, take that level of, you know, it, it's we just too many times we don't even think about that right it's just we process like we're processing we we bring them in at the scheduled time most of the time they're running a few minutes late you know and and then we just okay so you ask the quick course you know questions and then you you start on the process right and uh yeah i mean it's so many more times i'm sure you've seen it too where the tech has to come out and say to the advisor Okay, so this car is in this condition. What is their long term? What do they think they're going to do with this car? Right? Is this something that they're going to flog in a, in a year, six months, three months? It's getting to be a long in the tooth, high mileage. What are they going to do? Because that, you know, dictates sometimes not what we're going to make them aware of, but it changes maybe the priority, right, Dutch, of, of what we're going to make them, how we would proceed if this was our car, how would I proceed? Like safety things always first, but I mean, if you've got, you know, we, we always talk about the air conditioning is, is not blowing real cold, but I mean, it's also got, you know, some structural stuff. Like we don't, we don't fix the air conditioning, right? We approach that like 
okay, we got to think, you know, do we, do we get this AC fixed for this car to last for another six months to a year? Or do we start to advocate for them and say, okay, let's, you know, let's make sure that this thing is safe and let's talk about, you know, your plan to replace this vehicle. But let's back up for, for just a second. Let's think from terms, let's use our business head. Okay. So you interview this, this person and they tell you that this vehicle is leased mm-hmm. and that every three years or whatever the lease period is, they get a new vehicle yeah. and they have no desire, nor have they ever purchased the vehicle outright. So is the emphasis that I am going to have with that individual on preventative maintenance that's going to help them get 100,000 miles or more on the car? No. Or is it to comply with the terms of the lease agreement, which says that they have to perform the maintenance as defined in that document or in the owner's handbook? Yeah. That's the plan that we have with them. Let you know, Safety obviously comes first, no question about it. But I want to even back up before that. I'm interviewing this person or my service writer or my CSR is interviewing the person and wants to know, what are your plans? And when people say, why do you ask? Which they do, and they're entitled to, because we're going to tailor this for you. Mm -hmm. Now you take that and you compare that to to somebody who has a car that their father gave them, and their father's no longer with us. And it doesn't matter how much they're going to spend on that car. That car means everything to them. So they'll spend money on that vehicle because of the emotional context that that car carries with them. Mm-hmm. Well, now they're going to get a completely different set of instructions and plans and outlines to help them achieve their goal. Right. Their goal is what's important. We've forgotten that in the industry. What happens is somebody comes into a shop. Oh, okay. You've got 58,000 miles. You're coming due on your 60,000 miles. Your 60,000 mile service requires. And they never ask them. Did you bring your maintenance records with you? Have you had the 60,000 mile service? Do you have your owner's manual with you so we can check and see if somebody wrote stuff in the back of it? Can I see a copy of your receipts? Isn't that important? Yeah, it is for sure. Then why don't we do it as an industry? Well, I think we don't do it because, and I, this isn't meant to, to say that, you know, uh, me waving a flag for dealer, but I mean, I think so much of how a dealer approaches servicing always seems to trickle down. And some dealers are good about, you know, following it and documenting it and so on and so forth. But a lot of dealers that my experience that have worked at is it's addressing the, 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 the issue or the complaint that they have. And it's not so much about selling based on the maintenance requirements. And I've had lots of advisors that, you know, don't even they just, oh, you don't need to do that. That's just, that's just suggested. It's not mandatory. It's not required. You know, well, the, they're Ill, ill-informed, you know, the, the, obviously somebody comes in, the first thing you want to address in customer concerns is the item that they brought forth. I'm concerned because my car shakes its speed. Okay. This is what, we've determined is causing that whatever it is, whatever X is, this is what it's going to cost to, ref- to fix. That is to remedy your issue. Great. Now, based on your stated objectives of keeping the car 
until the wheels fall off, which is actually what we have on our form, on our quick intake form, keeping the wheels fall This is what we're going to recommend. So I need for you to understand this is the plan of action. Does that work for you? It, it, it's really simple. You put their needs first. Yes, the concerns have to come in. And obviously, you're not going to do anything. You get this thing up in the air and we find out that this is a car from the Great White North Rust Belt. And the, you know, the, the subframe is rotted out and the damn thing is, is held together by bailing wire and a prayer. I'm not touching that car. You know, I mean, that's we take pictures, we send it to them. Listen, can you come down during lunch? Mm-hmm. If you can come down during lunch, I want you to see this in person. You know, I'm, because really, I don't. What I want you to do, and I've used this line a lot, I want you to go from here on your way home. I want you uh, to stop at church and I want you to light a candle um, because what you've done is you've just won the lottery. So on the way out of church, go to 7-Eleven and pick up a lottery ticket because you've won. This this car is done. It's It's toast. And the ability to tell people, don't spend money on this car for whatever reason is really profound. Mm-hmm. Don't spend money on this car because even if that means, and that's the difference between being an advocate and being a salesman, an advocate will tell the customer what's in their best interest, irrespective of the consequence to the advocate. Right. A salesman wants to make the sale. Because some coaching companies, Dutch, don't. They What you just said, they would... If you'd have stood up in the room and said that, they would show you the door, right? They would tell you that you're that you've fallen off your rocker, right? Like, oh no, that that would be polite. I've been thrown out <laughs> of glasses. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. I, I even sat through at, at ASTE. I sat through a, a course on management and such and so forth because um, when I went to ASTE, I didn't just sit there on all the the technical stuff, because I mean, I'm not, I'm not a young man either. So I'm thinking about my, you know, my next few years and how I move away from as much in the Bay and into, you know, a transition to being more in a management role or whatever you want to call it, service writer, so on and so forth. And they said to me in the class that you never tell the customer to not you know, to not do a repair, to not, and that's hard for me to, to completely get on board with, because I just think that, you know, I always, you know, equate it to, well, if it's my, my mom, you know, my mom is one of the most trusting people in the world. If somebody was to say to her that you need to do this today, she would, you know, before I got, more established as a tech. And before I was able, I, I lived two hours away before now she's much better, but okay, well I'll have my son look at it. But before, if they'd have said you need this X, Y, and Z, she'd have just done X, Y, and Z. Cause she trusted it wouldn't have mattered Dutch. If next month she intended to get rid of that car, she would have been very torn about, well, somebody is telling me that I need to versus, you know, and I, I that's always, you know, really resonated with me how, I was I was trying to be an advocate before I even knew what to be an advocate was, if that makes sense. You know? No, it, 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 it does. You have to understand that there are two standards of behavior in the world when it comes to, there's a standard behavior that happens between interpersonal relationships. 
Jeff, I like you. I'm not going to mislead you. I'm going to tell you the things that if you ask me a question, you might not always like the answer, but I'm going to give it because I owe that to you. I am honor bound mm -hmm. to tell you the truth. All right. And you might hate me because of it, but this is what I'm required to do because we're friends and, and, and it demands honor demands that. And then there's the second series of behaviors, which is the standard that's acceptable for business. Mm -hmm. And the standard that's acceptable for business oftentimes runs entirely counter to the, the very things that you and I were raised with when we were kids. Right. I mean, they, and you have to be very, very cognizant of that. And you have to be aware that what you say to people makes a difference. The words you choose make a difference in perception. Mm -hmm. If you don't focus on that, you're liable to get into sales speak. Sales speak is not the same speak you would use with your friend. Right. The only time you might use sales speak is with your wife. If she shows up and says, honey, does this dress make my butt look big? You're going to say, you know, I think you have uh, better outfits in the more flattering outfits in the closet. Mm -hmm. But you're not saying, yeah, it makes it look like the side of a barn which is what you might say to your friend, right? You know, what do you think of me in this outfit? You look like a tangerine. What the hell are you thinking? You know, that <laughs> this is so the the honor, the integrity of being an advocate where you actually discourage a repair or service based on what is best for the customer. Mhm. Mm is something that, that for sales-oriented business is anathema. Because if you think of the center of a business, let, let's, let's be candid. A business has to generate profit in order to stay in business. It has to. No other it, reason. There's no question. Otherwise, it's a charity, right? Okay. So for me, it's not a question of, is my business going to generate profit? how my business generates profit is of equal or greater importance than the fact that it has to generate profit. Because if I have to generate profit by engaging in some of the duplicitous practices that I see that are so prevalent in our industry, I'll shut the effing door. I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, you'll start me on a rant because I'm not going to, I'm not going to wind up doing that, man. I'm, I'm not going to do to other people what I see happening in stores across this country. Now, I'm not talking about deliberate theft, right? I mean, you know, this, we've all had experience w w with shops that were so desperate or so greedy that they've said, told people that they needed things that they legitimately didn't need, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't know of a tech who, that who's any type of experience that hasn't experienced that scenario. Yeah, a car yeah. comes to them and, you know, so and so, dealership, shop, independent, whatever, says, I need to follow, I need brakes. And you, you, you check them and you're at six millimeters yep. all around. The rotors aren't scored. There's no pulsation. Runout's good. I mean, the, the, you know, you don't, well, what happened was somebody had, she heard a brake squeak because it got wet and the car sat for three days and she backed up and she heard a, a squeak. So she got nervous, went to, oh no, you need brakes. You need, no. okay. So we, we've all seen that type of, experience.
I don't want to be put in a position, and I kind of lost my train of thought there for a second. This is what happens when you get to be my age, where I have to engage in using sales speak. I'd rather speak plainly. Right. Right. And that's why transparency is a load of shit. Oop, there we go again. See, now here, here I'm going to be in trouble in a minute. But is uh, it? I'm sorry. I'm pretty profane. So. so that's a pretty bold statement, though, Dutch, to say that transparency is, is a load of shit. Because, you know, we talk all the time about being transparent to our customers, right? Yeah, but see, that's the difference, Jeff. There's a difference between walking the walk and talking the talk. We talk about transparency. Right, we absolutely talk about transparency. We have nothing to hide. We want you to see the process, and that's why we have DVI and everything else. Okay, so if you're going to tell me as a shop that you practice and you believe in transparency, kudos. So let me ask you: when you um, the customer walks in, do you have a sign that says uh, our technicians work on commission? We are commission based facility. Yeah. Hi, my name is Jeff. I am your service writer. My job is to generate a ticket that will allow me to hit specific goals for the day. Yeah. Big sign on, on the outside, say we're a commission-based structure, are there, in, in your transport? And yet we know no. that no. shops operate that way with, with service writers getting paid on commission, right? And we know essentially that flat rate is production commission-based, that the IRS views it as a commission-based structure. So I'm, I'm waiting for all the shops that, that – proudly exclaim that we are transparent to have these huge MF and signs that say, welcome to the home of the commission salesperson yep. and the commission technician. And here's what we're going to do. We offer spiffs on every set of wiper blades that we sell and every battery that we, that, that we sell pays the technician this amount of money. See, yep. transparency is a term that's used, but it's not actually practiced. It's transparency in the areas that they think that will gain them market leverage. It's not legitimate transparency. If it was, they wouldn't stay in business. Commission has become such a bad word now that we see signs saying commission-free sales staff. But the sign then should say, but all our sales staff have a quota that they have to hit or they're not going to be here next time you visit the establishment right i mean that's that's the that's the truth of the matter right that's the other side well it depends it depends on how they're, they're paid it's you know yeah. the the i don't have a quota system here mm -hmm. I, I don't i don't have a quota i let the guys do what they do because they're legitimately thinking and because of that we i've been able to be in business for 25 years mm -hmm. now am i as big am i a multi-store operator no do I have 16 techs? No. Yeah. Is my attitude about how we treat the customer an impediment for some techs to come work for me? Yes. Because if they're, if they're money motivated, I'm not the right shop for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was thinking more like when we, because to, to every, a lot of customers, this is still just a, sa a sales transaction. So I, I'm, when I'm, when I'm saying about quota, I'm thinking about like, if you go down and to Best Buy, and, you, and you're shopping for oh, yeah. a TV or something, right? Like they, so they're not at a commission on that particular TV, but they have to sell a certain amount of product at the end of the month to be still there next month. That's what I kind of meant by non-commission and how a lot of people have been duped. 
because true transparency would be, no, they're not paid a commission on that television, but they need to sell me five TVs this month. You know, that's, that would be true transparency. You're right. And you see when, when you true transparency is, we don't have anything to hide and we want to show you how it is that we conduct business. So you as a consumer have the right to know how we operate. And here's the deal. We want to respect your autonomy. Think about this. This is, this is something that nobody discusses. We raise our sons to understand that no means no when they're with a girl. We raise our daughters to understand that no means no when they tell a boy no because they're doing what comes natural, right? And she's not comfortable that no means no. All right, not a problem. But in the sales environment of a a business, no doesn't mean no. No is an objection that must be overcome. Mm -hmm. Think about that. So basically, you're telling people, and some of the sales techniques that are being taught are disgusting. They're absolutely disgusting. Now, don't get me wrong. I love sales. I flat out love sales. I mean, I do. Sales have built this country to what it is, commission structure, salesmanship. I love salesmanship. But there are just some venues that it doesn't belong. As an example, I love ketchup on my french fries, but I would hate like hell on my chocolate ice cream to put it there. It just doesn't belong. In the auto repair business, where people need to find somebody that they can trust, that they can rely on, who has their best interest at heart, salesmanship, to meet arbitrary sales targets, doesn't exist. It shouldn't exist. It's not there. Yep. Because if if you say to a person, and based on what uh, our technician has noted, we recommend the following, and they say no, you're going to have coaching companies that say, oh, why? Mm -hmm. Well, if it was your daughter and she said no to the boy that was making the advance, do you want him to say why or do you want him to respect the no? You want the, the no to be respected. Right. Yep. You want the no to be respected. But in business, there's that second standard of behavior. Hmm. That's a problem that we're going to have to try to overcome. And what we're going to do is we're going to use vocabulary to lessen the impact of it. See, we're not telling you that your cost for today's service is $1,253. Today's investment is $1,253. Mm -hmm. It's not an investment. It's not going to yield anything for you. You put that in the car, it's not going to, the car's value is not going to appreciate. No. Because you, you're not buying gold here. No. Right? I mean, the, the, there are countless books that I have because I study this stuff where... <laughs> The object is to use subtle manipulation to steer the conversation in a direction that you want it to go and the customer be damned. Mm -hmm. So that's why I say that transparency as it's practiced in the overwhelming majority of shops 
is simply bullshit. It's a catchphrase. Yeah. It's like organic marketing. It's like when you go to the supermarket and you see organic Himalayan salt. The fuck are you talking about? How are you going to have organic salt? There's no organ. No organ. There's no organism. In, you, you, there's nothing that you. It's salt. It's a mineral. But we're going to advertise that sure. because we want to uh, convey how caring we are. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the countless examples like that, 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 that I have. So, yeah. So Dutch, can I ask you then, because you're, I mean, we've, you're not the only person that has, that thinks the way you do in terms of only, I don't want to say only selling what is, but your, your sales approach, there's others that have the exact same sentiment, right? Why is so many of them Dutch, have they failed? Or do they need this, these coaching people to turn around their culture of, of selling, you know, more aggressively? Why, why are they failing and uh, you've had success for 25 years? I, I think because the simple truth is that, that the majority of technicians who become business owners don't know how to talk to people. Learning how to talk to people, to speak clearly in order to convey a sense of urgency, in order to convey a sense of importance, to be able to prioritize repairs, to be empathetic, to be understanding of what someone's going through. These are skills. And if you've ever listened to a technician who's answered the phone, for the most part, our telephone conversations here are recorded. So if you have a technician um, that answers the phone, it's horrible. how they, And it's not that they're bad people. No. They just don't know how to talk to people. It's very cut and dry, black and white, right? It's, it's you, you either know how to, to communicate with people or you don't. It's a skill set. And if you don't, then you have to learn it. Now think of the tech that decides the hell with it. He doesn't want to work for a dealer or an independent anymore. He's going to start his own ship. Okay, great. He's going to chart his own course. So he goes out and he does what's necessary. So he has a place of his own where he's doing it full time. He has very little business education. He's overwhelmed by the stuff that he has to do every day. He has to fix the cars, order the parts, talk to the people, check out the people. He's got a lot to do. And on top of this, you're going to add on, learn about business and learn how to talk to people. Because for the most part, when you worked at, at a store, when you're at a dealership, you don't have to talk to the customer. Not much. No, no, there's this, you know, unless the service writer brings or the service advisor brings a customer out in your bay and says, Hey, Jeff, can you show Mrs. Jones the play in the uh, ball joints that we, you were discussing so she can have a better understanding? And you say, sure, Mrs. Jones, come on, let's go. Let's look at here and here and there. There's very little act, right? You're not, you didn't learn how to prepare the estimate, present yeah. it in a manner that the customer can understand. You haven't provided any education because you're stressed. Or you begin to speak in techno babble. Mm -hmm. you, you're going to impress upon them your knowledge of the of the systems and components of that vehicle, so that their eyes glaze over, and they really don't. To you, you're doing a great job. Bullshit baffles brains, right? As they say, yeah, the, they quit listening 
60 words ago because they, they can't. They just want to get to the part of the pain. How much is this going to cost me? I, I think that a lot of it is personality. You have to have the personality, which I don't have anymore because I'm a curmudgeon now. I'm just a crusty old bastard. But when I started this, I genuinely liked people as opposed to now where I hate them. <laughs> and I'd, I'd want to, you know, to talk to them. I was, it was the same when I was on the airplane. People wanted to come up into the cockpit. Sure. Come on. Let me, you know, before nine 11 or Mm-hmm. Let's go. Let's see. Let's go. Do you know you want to take a picture of your kid in the seat with with the captain's hat on? I was doing that. That's the kind of stuff you did to sell the product. Yeah. Right. To make the experience. So I was determined to make sure that I was going to be different. And the difference was that there was not going to be any sales pressure. So why don't they succeed? Because they don't know how to talk to people, in my estimation, because they have no business training to understand what it is they're doing, because they never listen to the customer. They never interview the customer to find out what the F the customer wants. Mm -hmm. How are you going to be their problem solver when you don't know what their problem really is? Well, they told me what the problem is. The problem is the car shakes at 65 miles an hour going down the highway. Really? Is that the problem that brought them here? No, they might have been. They might have not driven 65 miles an hour. It might, it might only be used, they might be there for a totally different reason, right? Maybe the, the reason that they're there is because the car at 65 miles an hour began to shake, and what they're really scared of is they've got to come go pick up their granddaughter. Mm-hmm. And they don't know if the car's going to give them problems because th- this is their first granddaughter, and they, they don't want any issues, no. right? Or they're going to take the car, and this car's going to be given to their grandson, and they, they don't want The grandson's going to be away at college, and, you know, you're not there to fix this car. Right. What's yeah. the backstory? Yeah. Very get true. to know people. Once you get to know people, you earn their trust. So then the coaching that we're starting to see such a push for in the industry, and it's, it's a, I don't want to say it's a new topic, right? Because you've, you've certainly coached more you know, your fair share of, of you've mentored some people. Mm-hmm. Why, why is it? So there's obviously different, I'm trying to think how to say this. There's obviously different methods, right? And can one method work for someone where your method doesn't like, are you trying to, it depends on what the stated goal of the, of the business owner is and the business. That's yeah. yeah. You have to remember that there are lots of different business models. Mm-hmm. Much of it is going to be determined by demographics and what it is. The goal of the business is to do right now. I'm, I'm going to, to speak candidly here. Firestone doesn't have as many stores as they have. And Goodyear doesn't have as many stores as they have. And a number of the bigger box because they offer the best auto repair around. They they just don't. No. Okay. It's not that their techs are brilliant or better than anybody else. They have a business model that focuses on a transaction-based business model. It's not a relationship-based business model. And it's a volume-based business model. Now, for a volume-based business model where you are going to try to move as many cars as possible through the facility because remember the facility is a factory and you want to keep production as high as you can in order to satisfy the requirements of the factory and its personnel my way of doing things is going to hamper production 
Mm -hmm. It's not going to work for you. Right. The closest business model that we see, not in our industry, that it works for is Chick-fil-A. Now, Chick-fil-A is fast food. McDonald's is fast food. Chick-fil-A is fast food. Burger King is fast food. All fast food, right? Yet, when you see the, the commercials, what are the commercials about? It's a, between a team member and a customer. And they're sitting on a little couch, and they're talking about the experience. And the customer is talking about how much they like the, the French fries or the, you know, the waffle cut fries or, the, or how so-and-so helped them on their day that they were feeling sad. Mm-hmm. And drew little smiley faces of the commercials out on the cup, and that made their day. That's the closest business model you're going to find. Because what they're pushing is not the transaction, but the relationship between the customer and the store. Yeah. That's where you're going to see that that works for them. Okay. Getting replicating this is extremely difficult. Building my business model to scale is very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. It's very, very, very difficult. In the book, The E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber, which is a great book for everybody to, to read about business, one of the things that they're focused on is scalability, and scalability is repeatability. You can, and he says, right, in it, you can't have an all-star. You cannot, what you have to do is you have to hire people who are competent. You don't hire superstars. And when you hire people that are competent to do their job, you can then replicate the systems that are necessary. If you love Italian food, you can't tell me that the Olive Garden serves the best Italian food you've ever eaten in your entire life if you've actually had real Italian food. Yeah. But it's competent. Mm-hmm. I see what you're. I see what you're saying for sure. So, do some of these? So, if you've got a shop that's on its, I want to say it's deathbed. It's it's taking its last breath. It's in dire straits. Mm-hmm. Does some of these more aggressive methods? Is it maybe that's why so many people sign up for it? Is because it's it can get them their head above water faster? Well, what they do is is this, and this is a widely held secret that's generally known, if that seems to make sense. <laughs> when you have a, a, a coaching company that goes, works with a struggling business, okay, where mm-hmm. they're really, they're on the precipice. They're, they're on the precipice. Most of those businesses have what's called low-hanging fruit, basic flaws in their business that once corrected can yield immediate results. One of the expressions is that sales fixes everything. That's not really true, but it fixes a lot. So one of the things that, that coaching companies will do is there's, there's a step program where they'll come in and they'll look and see about the margins, right? between parts margin, labor margin on this. And they'll educate the shop owner about the difference between margin and markup, for example. And they'll look at their labor rate to determine, are they charging enough based on, and they'll look on, you know, and they start to change those items, which immediately have a result that starts to generate more revenue. 
once money starts coming in, which can happen pretty quickly, then the owner can take a breath and go, okay, the sense of panic and dread that I have, I'm still concerned. I'm still concerned, but I'm not, I'm not losing sleep as much as I used to at night. Mm -hmm. That was one of the things that you hear when people say raise their rates. Well, you have a lot of people who are charging no money. Basically, they were charging, but the amount that they were charging wasn't covering their overhead. And all they knew is that they were busy, very, very busy, 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 but they weren't making any money and they were frantic Mm -hmm. because how can I get more work in if I'm this busy and I can't find anybody to work because they confuse being busy with being being productive and generating revenue. And they're two completely different. They can be two completely different things. So when these, these, and, and don't, you have to understand some of these coaching companies are very, very mercenary. Um, one of them will have, and now the last time I checked, they had a, um, Part of their business plan was that the shop owner would sign a promissory note in excess of $70,000 for a a two-year contract. So $70,000? Yeah, it it was at the time that I last saw it. Now it's it's more, but it was, they made the shop owner sign a $70,000 promissory note. So the company, I'm not going to mention its name. They were paid before anything else. In other words, you were going to sign up with this coaching company and you had to sign a promissory note to the tune at that time of $70,000. Like I said, I think it's more now. And that was going to be a two-year contract that you were going to be working with. The deal was that in in the terms of the contract that I saw, that I personally read, the promissory note obligation was to be passed down to your heirs or assigns. So the fact that on my way to work, I got run over by a bus, right? I got into a car accident. That amount was still to be paid by my, you know, I had to turn to, my wife would be saddled with, or children would be saddled with the debt. Mm -hmm. And what they did is they approached this in a very, very mercenary way. When, uh, because when I started, you got to remember, this is a long time ago. They didn't really have, there were very, very few coaching companies, very, very few coaching companies that were around. There was just a couple of essentially like three big players and, and that was it. And this was one of the, the big players at the time. And they were really mercenary because you went to a three day boot camp where they would show you some things to help improve your business. And what they wanted you to do was to bring your numbers with you. You'd bring your P&L with you. And then they would run the, the P&L and show you in areas which you were deficient, where you could improve. And they brought a closer. I don't know for people that are not familiar with sales jargon, a closer is a man whose job it is to close the sale, to get you to sign the contract. Now, you would never typically see that guy ever again. This is the one thing that he did was that he would close the sale. And I thought that was reprehensible. That was absolutely reprehensible because it showed what they cared about. What they cared about was making sure that they could get the deal signed. 
now if when you brought your your p and l if it didn't look like you could afford to do it and the risk of of failure was high they would just dismiss you you, you can't afford us they would tell you send you home and go on to the next person next so they were they were really really mercenary now some people let's be fair some people receive value from that mm-hmm. the majority of people that spoke that i spoke to didn't you know yeah. so i i am biased against them because of my experience with them but what we see is in the industry is that there is a more sales centric approach than what makes me feel comfortable. I don't want, and I don't, I starting to see some of this in medicine, which really is reprehensible. Mm -hmm. I don't want my physician to recommend a drug or a procedure because he is getting a kickback. I want that person to recommend or a drug or a procedure because that is what's in my best interest as their patient to have performed, advocating for me. And when you see what's happening, it's very easy when you have young shop owners who are struggling because they have no experience and you're given a lifeline. And not only with this lifeline is there some sound business practice. In other words, this business practices, which actually work in in other fields. And in this field, it's, you know, let's watch your expenses. Let's do, you know, let's understand how P and L's work, what a balance sheet means, all all this sort of stuff. But you're surrounded by a culture where you're emotionally invested. Mm -hmm. And it's not just, it's a difference between a consultant and a business coach. A, a coach has a more holistic method of trying to, they're working with you, not only in your, but your, your mind-body connection. They want to make a connection with you and put you in a group of like-minded people. So it's almost, you ever been to an Amway convention or a multi-level marketing convention? Never. It's, it's, it's a very encouraging, rah, rah. You can do it oozing positivity. People call it a cult in many. It's a cultish in my in my view. Mm-hmm. But it, it helps people who need not only direction, business direction, but who need to be propped up psychologically, emotionally, so that they don't feel alone. They can f- f- feel part of something bigger. Okay. So that's what a coach does. They, you know, they work with psychologically to help you. A consultant comes in and says, you're paying me X amount of dollars. Let me look. And he looks with laser-like precision and he finds, okay, this is bad. This is bad. This is bad. These are the steps that it's going to take to fix it. This is the action plan that I'm going to design with you to do it. Go ahead and do it. You're an adult. And he's gone. Mm -hmm. Then he may come back later on and say, okay, you've had X amount of time to do this. Have you done it? But they're not there to hold your hand. They're not there to tell you how wonderful you are. They're not there to, to, to share your dreams about the future. They're not about to engage in any of that um, Birkenstock, mm-hmm. you know, kind of stuff. It's, it's tree hugging, tie dye wearing, and it's not a political thing. It's just, you know, let, let, let's, 
this is this is not what they're there for, you know. And when you have a charismatic leader, when you have someone who is easy to relate to, who's almost the same age as many of these people, or if you're a shop owner and you're older, okay, you're older, and you haven't been enjoying, enjoying a great deal of success. You're working hard. You're honest with your people. You think you're doing your best that you can, and you're just you're not where you want to be. So you, you turn to this organization and you find, or these organizations, plural, and you find, hey, there are people like me here. Mm -hmm. I'm not alone. Yeah. Yeah. People I can share experiences with. They understand me here. And they do have some principles that work. Again, you don't fault the results in as much for me. I want to see people succeed, but how they succeed is just as important right? Well, that's as their success. So what I had to do is in, in one case, actually in, in several cases, I attended their classes. So I paid to go <laughs> because maybe I was judging them harshly. Maybe I was judging them based not on my personal experience, but what I heard. And that's dangerous because that's not fair. Yeah. But there were programs that they had online that, that I paid for, thousands of dollars for. Um, there were classes that were held here that I've attended um, that I actually got up and walked out. You know, uh, so it's, it's, yeah, and my fear is, is that that because it's successful in that it generates revenue faster than the approach that I use. I see more and more shops going to that, which makes the need for shops like mine even more important. So let's, let's take a kind of a slight left. Okay. Um, we talk about, you and I talked last week about how we get into the owner versus the tech you know, us versus them type scenarios too often. And sometimes it, that's all seems to be a lot of times driven by financial, right? And you mm -hmm. talked about how most techs are not very smart financially in terms of financial planning and setting themselves up for, I want to say a succession or an exit strategy out of this, right? Because what, you know, what you said to me last week about how, you know, you said it's a basic, you're, you're a factory worker and you're building a widget and it's about production. And so you have a set amount of time that you've got to do where you're going to be able to do this. And then you're going to slow down. You are going to lose the ability to do it at the best efficiency that you used to be able to. It is not their problem that that happens to you. It is not their responsibility to, to accommodate you for, for that to, to, to set you up and, and take care of you, as you said. And that really resonated with me because it's like, it's a big dose of reality. Right. So touch on that a bit, Dutch, like what you mean. You know? Well, look, you, you, we're engaging in a production based business. Um, your ability to be considered a valuable member of the team in that capacity as a production based business is based on your ability to produce. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to be honest with yourself, you have to admit 
that all of us age, unless you just get, you know, died one day, but you'd age. And, and the reality is that you're not going to be able to produce with the same speed efficiency as you are now in your younger years. Recognizing that that limitation exists. Do you not owe it to yourself and your family to start now so that when you reach that eventuality that you likely are going to reach, you are prepared for it Mm -hmm. financially, emotionally, so that you can continue to have the life that you'd like to have? Well, if you're going to do that, you have to believe in two words, and it's called deferred gratification, meaning that most Americans, and I'm not just picking on techs, okay? I, I, you know, this it's very simple to say, this guy really, as an owner, he must hate a tech. Number one, I was a tech. So well, I don't hate techs. I don't hate myself. But the reality is that most Americans don't plan well for their retirement. And depending on the source that you go to, the Amer- most Americans have less than $1,000 in their checking account. And if presented with a $1,000 bill for a repair of something or an, a, an unexpected expense, they would be scrambling. Mm-hmm. Well, the problem with technicians and the problem with Americans on the whole, it's people really in, in our culture, is that the old expression is people don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. Ah. All right. So when you're young and you have the ability, and it's, it's a failure of the educational system to teach budgeting, to teach what's necessary for you to, because the odds are, if we look at actuarial tables, the odds are that you're going to live to about 70, 75 years of age, between 72 and 75 years of age. Now, is it certainly possible that we all know guys that have died well before then and gals, yeah, absolutely. And something horrible happens and completely unexpected. Yes, but that's atypical. That's not the norm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Knowing that, don't you have a responsibility to do that which is necessary to sacrifice today for the blessings of tomorrow? What do I mean by that? Well, stop buying shit. <laughs> now, if you, if you look at, I can't tell you how many techs I know that are in their prime. Okay. I mean, they're late twenties to mid thirties and they're humping. I mean, these guys are busting out 60, 70, 105 hours a week, just nailing it. And they're buying Harleys mm-hmm. and they got bass boats and they got, uh, uh, you know, three new cars in the family. Yeah. And they're just, man, they are living large as hell. And they got no effing money saved. They don't have a retirement plan. They don't have anything. But, man, they got, and I'm working towards my second Harley. And hell, I was thinking about getting an Indian, you know? They, and that's what is going on because they don't have the financial discipline to know to put money back. They don't live within their means, they earn. And then they turn that money into shit yeah. that they don't need that's depreciates. Now, I know there's going to be somebody going, ah, oh, bullshit, I bought this Harley and it'll cost me this much. And now it's a, yeah, that's the exception to the rule, pal. Yeah. You know, that's not the way th- that this works. If you can't, there should be no surprise to any technician that reaches a specific point in his life, in his age, 
where his boss pulls him aside and says, either you're not able to cut it anymore in this capacity, so we're going to move you to service writer because I think you'd be good with people, or we're going to move you to shop foreman where you don't have to be the one to turn the wrenches anymore, but you've got an excellent, excellent command of language and the guys relate to you so we can we can help you you can help them be better and or you know i gotta let you go you, you just you're not able to cut it anymore mm-hmm. now if if that tech doesn't plan for that they get pissed and they're pissed at the owner well that's a problem that you started yourself we used to say in aviation piss poor planning with poor performance mm-hmm. right and a failure to plan on your part does not constitute an emergency on mine amen so yeah. you tell me what prevents the the young guy who's in his mid-20s who's who's you know he's had a couple of years under his belt from going out and saving as much money as he can and seeking uh instruction from a certified financial planner mm-hmm I, yeah, uh, what I see happening so much in this industry, and we, we talk about the, we were talking off the air about, you know, tool addiction and, and the cost of tooling, right? It's so high. And I, I feel like it, when, just as we start to get established in terms of our skill set and our abilities and, and, you know, we, we hit our stride, you might say, in terms of, boy, my all cylinders fire my brain's working good my body's good i'm turning hours you know all that kind of stuff the amount of tooling that we have i think is so there's a substantial amount that if we'd have been able to take that and put it into a 401 or whatever right something else uh, rrsps whatever investment for the future we'd have a pretty lucrative amount of money. Now I understand that we need the tooling to do the job. I just think that that's, and I'm not making excuses for us as, as techs. I'm just saying, I think that that's something that we get overtaken with, with the, the drudgery of always needing the tooling. And then we don't think about, okay, that money that I've put to that point, I should now start to put in because we all know, I'm at that point in my career where I don't have to buy a whole lot of of tools anymore, right? Like I had to buy a scanner, but I mean, I don't have to, I'm not constantly on the truck buying this, that, and the other thing because I've got a good set of tools. You know, I'm, I don't lose them. I don't break them. I don't tend to have to replace too much. And I've gotten to where, okay, instead of taking that money that I used to have to put, you know, $300 down every month on tools and direct it to somewhere focused on my future i now find i'm spending it on like you said crap right i think that that's something that if i could if i could give any text listening some advice think about it that way right because your tools when you're done dutch you're not going to be worse shit right like you're not going to get 10 cents on no. the dollar for them see here's the thing about about tools and i want, want you to kind of consider this because this is a, a different perspective all right there are the occasions where you have to go on the tool truck because the tool truck has a tool that you need to get that job accomplished, right? Mm-hmm. Without this tool, I, I simply can't do this job. Mm-hmm. Or I could do this job, but it's going to take an inordinate amount of time and it's not going to, it's going to affect my productivity and the shop's productivity. Okay. When that happens, in my opinion, 
as an owner. The owner should pay for that tool. Wow. Okay. That's what we do here at my shop. Okay. If there's a job, if I take in a job and that job requires a special tool in order to get done, mm -hmm. the tech comes to me and says, I need this. I got to have it. We can't, we can't do the job. I'm trying to work around it. I've, I've asked some of my friends, there's no work around. We got to have this tool. Okay. I'll order the tool and I'll pay for it. If it's on the truck and he's paid for it, I have it transferred to my account. Then I want them, aside from those instances where they have to have that tool to complete that job, which I've eliminated because I'm the one paying for it. I don't want them on the damn truck. Let's forget the productivity issue of losing 15 minutes or 20 minutes for them being on the truck. Let's forget about that entirely and say that they only did that on their off hours. Right. right? Okay. So there's no loss of productivity. They're paying 30 to 40% more for that very same tool than they need to because they're making an impulse purchase and they're making an impulse purchase typically where it's not a matter of $10 like, okay, here's 10 bucks and I'm done. It's a matter of X amount of dollars per week for the next 10 weeks, because that's an average turn on a tool truck. And when they're doing that, they're spending far more money. I have a flyer that it's, it's over by the other side here that from a, uh, one of the, the drivers, for an AC setup. It's a leak detector. And according to the flyer, it's 1800 and something dollars for this leak detector. It's an entire setup. Okay. That very same detector by, by the very same manufacturer sells for $600 less online from a reputable seller. Right. Okay. That's a lot of money in it. Well, if the tech has been saving if he's been doing what he wants to do and he wants to own that tool, he doesn't want the shop to own it. He wants to own it because he's going to be doing AC work on the side. God, I hate side work, but he's, he wants it because he has the idea of he's going to open a shop in the future and he wants to slowly start to build his tool inventory now. Okay. For his shop, he's doing it. He's saving a tremendous amount of money by not buying it on the truck. Mm -hmm. If One you're buying it, why not go and you've determined you got it? You know where some I got some of the best snap-on tools I ever got? Pawn shop. Why buy new when used will do? And if my dealer didn't want to warranty it, if I broke it, there's a problem. Mm -hmm. So there are ways to get that which you want without breaking the bank. Where you can save the money so that you can apply that for your retirement. But a guy knows that he goes on the truck. Really, you tell me why it is that a toolbox costs 12000 14000 21000 I looked at a toolbox setup that, that I said, price this out. It was 65000 plus what I was trading in that I was getting 30000 for. It's a freaking toolbox. I'm not saying you have to walk around with a cardboard box with your stuff in it. No, but the, it's we're talking the price of materials like that rival... Some vehicles, and yet yeah. you tell me there's not as many. There's way more raw material in a vehicle, let alone the technology and everything that had to be paid for in a vehicle versus some tin and some hinges. I mean that you're exactly right. That yeah. you know it, it just. And again, I bought. It's like with cars. I bought one new car in my entire life. Actually, I bought two. One for me, one for my sister in 1988. That was the last new car I ever bought. I have, n 
What's that? I've yet to own one. Yeah. I, I, toolboxes? I've never bought a new toolbox. Why would I buy a new toolbox when I can get one that's used? The money is better off in my pocket than it is the Snap-on dealer's pocket, and I want them to make a living. They come here every week. They, you know, this, it's not a problem. And if, again, if my guys need something, or if they they want because it's their anniversary, I'll buy them tools. You know, here here it is. You've been with us for X amount of time. We're gonna. You want a cart? I buy them carts. I buy them side lockers. Whatever it is that you know that they need as a sign of appreciation for what they did. Okay, that's cool. But I'm not asking them to pay for it. Wow, that's uh, <laughs> that's bold. Um, not bold, but I mean that's that's a commendable act to, you know. Um, it ain't not- what you say; it's what you do. Yeah, yeah. You know that's that's the toughest part is the follow. You know, so somebody looks and says, "Well, Dutch, you don't have twenty percent or twenty two percent pre tax on operating profit on your business." And they're right. I don't. I don't have 22%. I have a figure that exactly makes me happy and allows me to be as generous with my staff as I want. Mm-hmm. Double digit figure. I'm a happy camper. I, I, I got, you know, that's what I want. That's what, but a lot of the other coaching companies going back to that focus on a specific figure mm-hmm. that they want to see 20, 25, 30% or more pre-tax net operating profit as a percentage of gross revenue. That the only way to do that is to by watching your expenses and by increasing production, and that that's that can be problematic if you don't want to, you know, if you're concerned about how you sell stuff. Yeah. So, do you see that, like, um, when we talk about kind of techs trying to transition out of succession out, do you see that as a viable means for a lot of them, like? We talked about, you mentioned maybe going to a service writer role. Is that something that you see that they can do? Or like you talk about, sometimes techs don't have the... the a small s- percentage can do it. Yeah. A, a, a small percentage of techs can become service writers because mm-hmm. most techs don't have the personality for it. Right. All right. I mean, the simple truth is that, that if, if unless you're at a facility that is unusual or atypical in nature... You got guys that are that are and the image is slowly changing that are typically cursing up a blue streak, especially when stuff goes wrong. Studs break, stuff happens. You know, it's it's a rough kind yeah. of environment, you know. That's just kind of part of the way it's always been. It gets better. I mean, this, you know, the girly calendars are gone. There's a lot of stuff that's that's changing, but the language is going to be tough and most techs don't know how to talk to people. They know how to talk to their friends. They know how to talk to their wives. They know how to talk to their mother because they would never speak to the mother in the same way that they, they speak to their coworkers for primarily in their friends, but they don't know how to, to, to talk to people that's, that's empathetic. So the, what I see happening most of the time is guys first leave to, if they're not burned out with the industry, they go to start their own stuff. If they're burned out with the industry, they go to one of the other trades or they'll go for a civil service job where they're guaranteed X amount of money and they have benefits up the wazoo and they now have to kill themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, they, and they don't have to talk to people, <laughs> you know, they, they, they work maintenance for, for various outfits where that kind of stuff is done. They become foremen, shop foremen, if they can, if they know how to teach, um, oh. which is difficult. 
we lose a, a massive skill set, right? Every time we lose one to, like you said, that that government job or or you know, we lose somebody that's you know got such a wealth of knowledge. I wish there was a way, I guess, that we could keep them, you know, as a viable member in in the shop. Um, even when the production starts to go down, you know what I mean? Like, how do we, is that possible? Not just, can, can we do it? Well, you can, but then you have to, you know, you, you, the problem is that as production goes down, their pay is going to naturally fall if they're production based. Mm -hmm. If you're going to say, okay, you're, you're getting older, you're slowing down. I'm going to blend you in a different role. You still have to try to recoup that money. You know, there's an expense with them being there that the business has to be able to, to pay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the fact is, again, this comes to, to, to the onus of responsibility. A tech knows if he admits to himself that he's going to be slowing down, whose responsibility is it then to make sure that he learns about empathy, that he learns how to speak to people, that he he. Uh, learns to develop the skills which will help him to transition, right? I mean, that this is—is is that the owner's responsibility? Is the owner that you know we're talking about paternalism here? Have to hold him by the hand and say, "Okay, now you're a grown ass man, but I'm going to teach you and walk you through what's necessary." Or is it up to for you to get your position as a service writer here or as a manager here? Or is it up to that individual tech to say, you know, shit, I'm not as fast as I used to be. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I like what I do, but I'm not going to be able to do this for much longer. I'm going to have to go to college and take some courses so I can basically understand some management. I'm going to have to do some stuff online. Let me check with my boss and see if he knows anything. Let me ask my friends to see if they know anything about improving and widening or broadening my knowledge base so that I can become more valuable to a prospective employer. But the, but the shop doesn't owe them a, a put out to pasture. And, and, you know, it's like it's not like when they're done being a racehorse, we just put them out to stud and, they you know, they live the remainder of their days chewing grass and, you know. With, they're not owed that, are they? No. We, look, somebody far wiser than I said, and I've repeated it often, we each navigate by the star of enlightened self-interest. We have to do what's in our best interest in the hopes that that corresponds or joins in the culture of the organization that we're working for. We want to do what's in, we want to do a good day's job, a good day's work at our job. We want to be productive at our job. We want to benefit the consumer and benefit the company at our job. But ultimately, in the end, we have to think about us. I want to think about the company. I don't want to screw the company, but I got a family to support, mm -hmm. right? As a, as a tech, there are things that I want to do in my life. So I'm going to show up at work and I hope that four things are present for me. If those four things are present for me, then we can do okay. And the four things is every, and it's a human being thing. Human beings, when at work, they want to be liked. Human beings want to be liked typically anyway, right? I mean, yeah. we want to go to a place that, that's pleasant, okay? They want their contributions to be acknowledged, right? As a member of, of, of the team. And they want that so that they feel appreciated. Mm-hmm. 
And above all else, they want to feel respected. If you can give that to your employee and that employee can feel good about going to work there, then everybody wins, right? Because the employee is going to give you his best effort. He's going to provide for his family and in so doing provide for the employer's family or the needs of the employer. Mm -hmm. Now I had here, I was going to have the Dave Ramsey course for my employees. All right. So I'm willing to pay for that course and it's not inexpensive. Only one person wanted it. Hmm. That's the failure of employer and employee relationships. I can't, as an employer, impart a sense of urgency. I can't impart drive. Yeah. I want my, my people to be successful. I want them to enjoy the life that they want. I want them to have the retirement that they want and the things that they want. But I can't compel them to do that which is necessary, which involves some measure of sacrifice in order to get there. Very true. Very true. So how do I, if I'm, if I'm willing to reach into my pocket and pay for a Dave Ramsey course so that they can take it online and watch, learn how to budget and learn how to do all this thing. And I'm willing to take, because that comes right out of profit and I'm willing to do that. And only one person decides they want to take up me up on that. How do I make them go to the library and learn about empathy? How do I make them go to central Piedmont community college on nights and weekends to improve their skills? How do I compel them to do any of these things when all I can do, it's a buffet, right? I'm walking out with a tray full of chocolate chip cookies and ice cream and steak. And I'm, and I'm saying, take what you want. But if they don't take anything, don't bitch at me when you're hungry. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're kind of walking the line of where it, it goes past uh, an employer's position and into what maybe parenting failed, right? Or exactly right. It's paternalism. Right. And that's a lot of techs, you know, they say they want to become, they want to work for an organization that treats them like family. And, and again, those are the items that, that we talked about respect, wanting to be liked, acknowledged and appreciated. Okay. That, that, that's cool. But there's an underlying thread that runs here that nobody wants to talk about and it pisses people off. And I'm good at doing that. So I'm going to continue. Mm -hmm. And that is that, that many, many techs want to be taken care of. Mm -hmm. They want to live the life that they want to live now. And at the end of their, their career, they want to be taken care of. It doesn't work that way. No, no, it, it doesn't work that way. I mean, it might in, in a rare instance, but the fact is that the responsibility to take care of yourself, it rests falls strictly on your shoulders. So when you see these guys, you know, and they're complaining, I was just a number and I don't know. Okay. So you would just felt like you were a number. Yeah. Okay. Weren't you just the same guy who was on the forum here the last week saying your toolbox comes with wheels if you didn't get an extra 75 cents an hour? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Weren't you the same guy who says, who, who, <laughs> boss earns a dollar, I earn a dime, that's why I shit on company time? Yeah. Aren't you the same guy who's, who makes five 20-minute trips to the bathroom every day and feels justified while you're bringing your phone in there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they want it to be a family, but they want to desert. They want to be able to desert it the minute, you know, stuff gets difficult. And I don't know, maybe that says more about where human nature has gotten 
in society period outside of the the realm of you know our industry maybe that's more telling of that than than and and that could be a completely you could really go down a rabbit hole on that right in terms of nobody wants to to make the long investment and do the hard work and you know whatever overused analogy you want but you're you're very you're very right you're not wrong there's a lot of us that uh you know, and and that's that's the thing I struggle with, and that's this little podcast is not going to be any type of retirement fund, but I mean, it's just a situation of of you know if we can get it out there to more people that you have to realize that it's not malice that you know when it's when it's over it's over it's just it's a natural evolution, and you know we all have to find like you said we all have to chart our way with the star. I just hope that you know, more of us, uh, can, can bridge that more successfully than we've been known to in the past, you know, cause I, I like, there's some of us that are working way beyond when we should be in mm-hmm. a shop out of necessity. And I mean, it's one thing to go in and do it cause you love it. But I mean, there's, I talked with a good friend of mine and he had a tech that worked with him up till he was 68, 69. And he said like he lo- he liked to work. He loved to be in there. He was good at what he did. But it was out of necessity, not out of, you know. And I have some customers that come into my shop. Uh, one gentleman is 78 years old, and he's still delivering parts for a local, a local parts store out of necessity. Yeah. Now we have to we have to be cognizant of the fact that there are case, occasions where this is a necessity because of a circumstance which the individual did not create mm-hmm. medical problems that that are sustained and everything and and then our hearts go out to them because that you know oh my god right after working an entire life and saving and doing everything and then someone has a, a bad disease or some medical problem happens and, and everything, their life savings is, is gone. And it's, it's just, it breaks my heart to think about when that happens. Okay. But that's not typical. No, that, that is the exception to the rule. It does happen, but it's, it's not the reason that most people remain working. It's because they failed to plan, you know, and, Think about this. Let's go back to the, the airline analogy. You know, you say, well, you got the mechanic who's no longer productive, so he's got to go. Well, for years, the retirement age for pilots was 60 years old. And then the shortage came and the age was raised. Okay. Went to 62, then 65. So do you think that when it was 60, or even now at 65, do you think the airline owes that pilot anything? When he ages out, even if he can per- still perform the job, but the, uh, the the FAA says you're no longer qualified to do this. You you have the skills. You are the most experienced. You've been in the left seat for the longest period of time. You've flown. In, you've got a lot more experience. You've got all the positive things going for you. We're letting you go. Mm-hmm. Okay, you're, you're done. What does the airline owe that pilot? Not a goddamn thing. Yeah, doesn't. What does the employer who works in a shop owe that technician? I'm afraid they don't owe him anything except that which they choose to give as an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's not mandatory. That's discretionary. 
right? What do, what do they owe the service writer who, who can't do his job anymore? What do they owe the CSR who can't do their job anymore? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. I guess it's just that in, in the comparing the pilot analogy, you kind of know, right? Like you can kind of plan for at 60 or 65, I'm not going to be, I'm going to be grounded, right? Uh, by regulations and rule state, I have to be. I think, mm -hmm. you know, in this, in this line of work, we never really know we're slowing down until we're already slow, right? We already oh, know. You know, you know that if you're honest, come on. And that's something else guys don't want to do. How many guys, you know, really engage in sincere introspection, right? They don't even want to set a budget up for the house. You think they're going to take inventory of the, of their skill set? Come on. You, you take guys, they won't even inventory their tools. You tell them, listen, here's what we need to cover your, your toolbox, right? So uh, as a shop owner, I'm providing you with insurance on your tools. What I need for you to do is to go out and use your, your cell phone and take pictures of your, your tools or take a movie of your tools and, and let's upload it to the cloud so we don't do that. I, that's what I need in the event, God forbid, anything happens and, and they get stolen from here, we want to be able to prove to the insurance company that this is what you have. Mm -hmm. Tell me, how many techs do you know have taken the time to inventory their own freaking tools? I can't name one. Now, how much how much time does that take? Oh, they got a lot of tools. Okay, it takes ten minutes. No hell, it takes thirty minutes for them to inventory their tools. Thirty minutes for take pictures of each drawer, hold tools up, record serial numbers. Thirty minutes. Okay. Because these guys have sixty, seventy, a hundred thousand dollars, whatever they have, they have in tools, right? Okay, they can't be bothered to do that. You think a guy's going to sit his ass down, look in the mirror, and say, "Truth is, I'm slowing down, and I need to evaluate. I think I'm slowing down because it, it, this. I need to evaluate what my future is going to be." You think they're going to do that? You're out of your mind. The overwhelming majority simply aren't going to. They may begrudgingly admit, yeah, I'm slowing up a little bit, but shit, I can still outperform half these guys on the floor. I got my left hand tied behind my back, still drunk while I'm still hot. And they're not, you know, because their ego won't, will get in the way and won't let them do it. Yep. Yep. Right. No, I... You show me with it. Give me a real world example. If I'm wrong, fuck it. I'll say I'm wrong. I wasn't thinking so much about the, the hours produced from slowing as much as the, the the mental side of it that's you know uh, and and for at least for my peer group a lot of people i talked to we're very we're all very honest about where we sit mentally right and would and, you say your attitude is typical or atypical i wouldn't say that i don't have the typical attitude in this industry i think that's the reason i'm here <laughs> okay so that's the that's what the way i talk or well, the things I have to say resonate with so many people is because it's not, uh, I mean, I, I, I advocate for a lot of texts and I speak what a lot of resonates with them, but you know, I'm also more honest maybe about myself and in my own abilities than, than a lot want to be. You know, like I said, introspection is a tough pill yeah. to swallow. Admitting that, you know, that things are slowing down, that, production and that maybe you're not grasping things as readily as you had in the past. Mm -hmm. You can still understand them, but it's taking you a little longer than you recall learning something new before. And your ability 
to retain information isn't quite what it used to be. And then what you do is you notice that you're going out and you're getting books and you're writing yourself notes and you're having to make lists and cross stuff off your list in order to ensure that you're getting stuff done. Mm -hmm. These are the things you have to admit. Hell, it happens to me. I got the book right here. I'm the one who got the notepad was writing the list down. This is just a normal function of aging. Doesn't mean you're a bad person. Well, as a pilot, I knew there was going to be a point where I was going to wind up aging out. Mm-hmm. As a tech to say, there's likely going to be a point where I'm going to age out as well. What's my second act? It's to do yourself and your family a disservice. And I've said it like three times because I'm trying to get these guys to understand. I'm not doing this to be mean. No, we don't. We don't take it as as being mean at all, Dutch. That's why. That's why I was so so anxious and looking forward to having you on is because like, like you've heard me say to you more than once, you're one of the few people that literally just is like, you don't sugarcoat it. You say, exactly, I don't sugarcoat shit. I don't have the time. No, it's, you say exactly what needs to be said in the most effective, efficient manner that could possibly be said. And that's what it, we need more of in this industry. So, well, the thing is that it's, it's what makes it difficult is because the type of candor and honesty that I was raised mm-hmm. to embrace and to value is no longer valued. It's seen, you know, people get their feelings hurt too easily and it's seen as being insensitive, etc. So, you know, I realize I'm on the downhill slide, right? I mean, I've got more years behind me than I have in front of me. There's no question about it. If, if I got 20 years left, that's a lot. Okay. I mean, that's the simple truth. What is my legacy going to be? That I went along to get along or that I strove to make a difference? Well, I'm trying through mentorships and helping shop owners and by doing podcasts like this and by doing the charitable things that I do and the other things, the activities that I engage in, I'm trying to emphasize to people that a difference can be made if you go out and you just do it one person at a time. That's what's necessary in order for us to make change. And if we, if you hate the way the industry is now, if you hate the way it's focused now, if you hate the direction that it is now, do something about it. Put down the TV remote. Nobody gives a shit about that football. You don't care about you. Go improve your life. Get up and do it. Yeah, it's it's like I said, you know, we have to be the change. Be that change. But, you know, I mean, that's it. We have to be the change we want to see. Yeah. I want I want to thank you man. It's like I said I've I'm I'm just somebody that that you know I I want to hear I want to hear the 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 perspectives, right? And I'm not scared of the the tough talks that we need to have. And I just I'm I'm like you, I'm tired of the excuses. I'm tired of of you know watching the same cycles go round and round. I want to see something different happen. And uh you know, I've got enough years ahead of me that I think I can do it. And um I'm I'm blessed to have you as a partner in that i appreciate it i appreciate it I, i genuinely do 
Hey, if you could do me a great favor real quick and like, comment, and share this episode, I'd really appreciate it. And please, most importantly, subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. As always, I'd like to thank our awesome guests for the perspectives and expertise, and I hope that you'll join us again on this journey of change. Thank you to the ASOC Group and to the Changing Industry Podcast. Remember what I've always said. In this industry, you get what you pay for. Here's hoping everybody finds your missing 10 millimeter, and we'll see you all again next time.